welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we have the pleasure of speaking with the core C-suite of True Labs for Cannabis, LLC. True Labs is the first certified woman-owned cannabis analytical laboratory on the East Coast. Sarah Ahrens, founder and CEO, entered the cannabis space out of a passion for eating healthy, buying organic, and knowing what's in the products she buys for her family. Uniting a successful business background and a lifelong love of science, Sarah leads a scientific team with more than 24 years of cannabis testing experience. She also serves as chair of the Laboratory Testing Committee for the New Jersey Cannabis Business Association, advocating for best practices and safety in the Garden State's emerging cannabis industry. Meg, how about you introduce Carl? Sure. Carl Christiansen, PhD, is the Chief Science Officer of True Labs. He leads the scientific and technological operations while ensuring True Labs' commitment to quality and the cannabis industry. He is focused on providing the highest quality data to customers in the most efficient way possible. Carl earned his PhD in chemistry from Boston College, where his research focused on natural products derived from bacteria. He completed his postdoctoral research at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, Germany, where he focused on the biochemistry of carbohydrates. Prior to joining True Labs, Carl started and ran a cannabis testing and processing facility in Vermont. Today, we'll be discussing the challenges in starting a cannabis testing laboratory, regulations, and testing guidelines, synthetic versus naturally derived cannabinoids, and more. Let's jump right in and expand our NOID knowledge. Thank you both for joining us today, and uh, let's just get started at the beginning, you know, origin stories. Sarah, your bio gave us a little bit about your entry into cannabis, and we'd love to hear more. But then, Carl, you have to tell us about how you went from postdoc carbohydrate biochemistry in Germany to analytical cannabis in Vermont, and then ultimately, how did you meet each other? Yeah, thanks, Meg. Thanks, Evan, for having us on. Um, We're very excited to be talking with you today. Uh, So, Evan, you kind of touched on this in my bio a bit, but I tend to be a very health-conscious consumer. And as a parent to two young girls, I'm always buying organic, reading ingredient labels, and wanting to know what's in the products I buy for myself and my family to consume. I'm such a big proponent of transparency in life and in products in general, but before New Jersey legalized for adult use, I could see how much of a need there was at that time for product safety and how that need would and has continued to exponentially grow. Essentially, I'm this caring mom who feels really passionate about bringing safety and transparency to the New Jersey cannabis market. I mean, uh, if if only everybody could bring passion like that to whatever market they're working in, uh, I think we'd all be a little bit uh, better for it. And Carl, there's a second part of that question for you, I believe. Yeah, so I'm happy to weigh in here and tell a little bit about how I ended up Uh, as the chief science officer for True Labs. I did my formal education focused on chemistry where I was specifically looking at natural products. So I've always had a passion for looking at the various metabolites that are produced throughout nature and that we as humans can use to modulate health and human safety. So I've looked at antibiotic compounds, anti-cancer compounds, 
and there was a natural transition into looking at the various metabolites that are produced from the cannabis plant with specificity towards the cannabinoids and the terpenes. So I was able to do some more fundamental research, uh, both in my PhD work and my postdoctoral work. And then I was involved in education for a while, but I had the entrepreneurial itch, uh, especially seeing this market start to come to fruition. And I was able to transition into this market with a focus initially on advocacy and regulatory systems. But I saw the need for some more scientific rigor within the space, and that caused me to start my own company in Vermont. And we were focused more broadly on the scientific aspects of this industry, from testing to extraction and product formulation and development. I exited that project in early 2021 and through networking was fortunate enough to be introduced to Sarah and was excited about joining forces with Sarah and her business background to focus in on the New Jersey market, which we both believe uh, will be a really great market to be a part of. And we were excited to bring our complementary skill sets together to endeavor in that direction. Yeah, and to add on to what Carl was saying, how do we meet? Uh, I will say it was a random course of networking, essentially. Um, I happened to be looking for a chief science officer and was actively interviewing, but I actually what got me on the phone with Carl was not, I didn't actually think we would be, or I would be interviewing him at all at that point. I thought I was talking about something else, just, you know, maybe instruments and so on and so forth, just connected through various folks. But uh, within 30 minutes of talking to him, it, I, he had me in the sense that like, you know, how they say you had me at hello, but um, I, I just could, could sense he would be an amazing uh, team member to have on board the True Labs team. And he's been an amazing partner and co-founder, essentially, along the way. So I'm very lucky. Well, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, I, Me too. I find, you know, the that organic, more spontaneous uh, origin uh, is, is often far more uh, durable and effective than uh, something like a headhunter or whatever, where there's, there's other interests that could be involved as well. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm glad the two of you ha have done this. Um, so Sarah, t tell me though, like uh, how did you make the, the bold, ambitious, exciting, and I'm sure equally terrifying decision to start a business, let alone one that is actually plant touching in a still federally illegal, highly state regulated economy. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of laughing internally as you're listing out all these adjectives that are so accurate in describing uh, a, the personality that's needed to start a business in the cannabis industry or in business in general, but the emotions that an entrepreneur goes through, it takes grit. And, and especially in a federally illegal space where things typically cost more, they're more difficult to obtain, um, and, and versus any other industry outside of cannabis. So it really comes down to passion and my why. 
uh, as which is what I was explaining before a bit. But it's that that passion for transparency and safety that helps to propel my determination and grit uh, when the going gets tough. When I first thought about starting a cannabis testing lab, it made sense financially, logically, and I got really, really excited about the impact and value that I could bring to the New Jersey cannabis market. And it's really uh, kind of a thrill, essentially, to be part of an industry that's just starting and just and you can have an impact on it and you can put your stamp and say, hey, I helped. Uh, and especially when it's this movement to, to move away from and you know the wrongs of social injustice, so to speak. Um, uh, it feels intrinsically rewarding in a lot of ways. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that you faced in starting the first certified woman-owned cannabis analytical lab on the East Coast? And do you have any plans or goals to help lift up other women or minorities in this space? So many challenges. I touched on them a little bit before, but um, there, there's frankly so many things I underestimated uh, in terms of time and difficulty. Uh, anything from finding health care for employees as a small business to insurance, banking, uh, working with a union. We have to work with a union in this industry in New Jersey, dealing with uh, building nuances that weren't anticipated or things that need overhaul that you weren't planning for. And I think, honestly, the biggest challenge for me was raising capital, which frankly took four times longer than I anticipated. Uh, for True Labs fundraise, the gender bias I faced was appalling. And it definitely added to an expanded timeline for the fundraise. And, you know, I. It's also, uh, there's some hurdles to overcome for an analytical testing lab in general, gender aside, right? But in general to overcome because uh, the concept that the, a cannabis analytical testing lab needs capital and a very large amount of it from a seed series standpoint, at least, uh, before the lab can get operational and start bringing in revenue. So it's a difficult concept for most investors to overcome because typically they like to see some sort of proof of concept or uh, some form of revenue is trickling into a business before they invest. Um, you, and, you mean yeah. millions of dollars just in analytical equipment uh, before you even have methods developed on that equipment is is well, challenging for an investor? Yes, in some ways. Yeah, because there's a lot of investors out there who are used to products or, um, you know, it, it's or there's more tangible like, hey, real estate. I, I get the idea of investing in real estate. And for us, at least, we, we lease our space. We don't own the building. Um, so, yeah, there is some challenges associated with, oh, wait, I can give you I can invest. But then, you know, you're going to buy the equipment and it's going to take X number of months to even get to the point where you're operational. Um, it, it is a challenging concept for a lot of investors. Um, when you, so when you're starting a business, any business, there, there's just so much to get done and to do that it's hard to see the horizon at times. And so Meg, this goes to your second question about plans to um, uplift other women and minorities in the space. But um, currently I help promote, mentor, and support and also connect as 
many women and minority-owned businesses in this space as possible. And once True Labs is more steady with operations, I'd love to get more involved with volunteering and specifically with social equity organizations to help make a broader impact in the cannabis market. And I'm happy to, to share my story and work with other businesses and minority and women-owned businesses at this point, but I'm also neck deep in trying to get uh, True Labs uh, in a steady operational state too. So it's a balancing act. I'm trying to do advocacy work, trying to start my business, trying to be a mentor and um, you know do good for the rest of the other social equity type businesses starting up out there. Yeah. How do you have time to sleep? <laughs> You're so busy. I mean, I mentioned I'm also a mom. so but yeah. I do it. <laughs> That was going to be my question is like, where, how does this fit in with taking care of small children? Uh, Me- Meg and I both have pretty small children and uh, the time doesn't seem to exist. <laughs> no, time is definitely the most crucial, crucial asset in, in the entire planet as far as I'm concerned. And there's never enough of it. Um, you know, it's just a balancing act. And certainly when I had my first, you know, I struggled with like, okay, the, the working mom aspect and, and how I managed through that. But Starting a business takes a ton of time. Um, I'm lucky that I have a great partner and husband uh, that helps to pick up the slack where I've been lacking recently in the past year or so. Um, but, you know, it's a give and take. you got to have some understanding help along the way. Yeah. It's a village, like they say. And even the example you're setting for your children, you know, you're, you're passionate about this and you're working hard and, and you're showing them that every day. So, you know. Kudos to you for that. And also sharing your story with the industry is kind of inspirational in itself. You know, other women and minorities will say, okay, look, Sarah did it. I could do it too. And, you know, that's great. I hope so. Thank you. (laughs) We just have to keep spreading the word. And I think that that helps lift others up as well, seeing that it can be done. Uh, you, You touched on... Uh, gender bias in fundraising. Uh, we we had Otha Smith on uh, a couple months ago, and he touched on the the same thing with racial bias. It's a, a, especially where the money's concerned. It's not fair out there, and we we have to keep saying this out loud so that somebody hears. There's institutionally ingrained conscious and unconscious bias that happens. And um, I think, honestly, everyone on the planet would be better human beings if they all had to undergo unconscious bias training. Uh, I know I had to do it at one point in corporate America. um, And I think it's something that, um, you know, it kind of opens your eyes to little things that you might not have paid attention to before. But there's so many investors that need a lesson in that. Don't they understand that women make the world go around? Is my comment back. <laughs> You'd hope. Yeah. I, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. But let's continue. So, Carl, tell us how your experience in in Vermont uh, with with this facility and everything. Uh, influences and and informs your role at True Labs? 
Well, certainly being an entrepreneur um, in that setting and starting that business um, on my own and, and going through the fundraise, you know, has certainly broadened my experience. And I think that any any experience that you have is good experience, whether it's positive or negative is another conversation altogether. But by being exposed to different challenges and having to be put in a position of solving problems, um, getting a sense of what um, Sarah's going through, uh, and being able to compare and contrast some of those experiences has been very positive overall. So I, I try to, as often as I can, relate experiences that I had within the context of that project to some of the challenges that Sarah's facing. And then it helps me just in my functional role at True Labs of being able to um, have a broader uh, viewpoint uh, than maybe um, other chief science officers may have, because I do come at this from the perspective of science being my focus, but putting it into the bigger picture of economic viability and making some decisions that are influenced from a number of different factors, having been through the role as a CEO prior to being a chief science officer, uh, it certainly shapes the way in which I think about things. So, um, you know, each, each experience is, is net positive, that's for sure. But then you also learn the incredible value of having complementary skill sets and focus. And this is really what drew me to working with Sarah in the first place is having to partner with someone who does have such a complementary skill set to me and such a significantly different background coming from the business realm with sales and marketing more as an emphasis in her prior career. Uh, that was really exciting for me because it was certainly as a PhD was not my forte and not something that I wanted to be able to focus on and being freed to really focus on the science uh, and dive into that role at True Labs while still, again, putting it into the bigger picture and how it may relate to some of those um, economic pressures. I just think it's been, a, it's been incredible to have had that experience prior to this um, because it certainly shapes everything that I do and continues to uh, be a source of information um, with anything that I'm faced with. I can continue to look backward at previous projects and say, what have I seen that relates to this? How have I approached this before? How have some of the people that I've hired and worked with, how have they done it? Um, how might that influence how I go about solving it? I can add to that, Carl, not even just your experience as an entrepreneur and a scientist, but also on the operations side of this industry and having that manufacturing type experience in the lab that you had um, has been really valuable too as you bring forward the conversations we're having with clients and so on and so forth and understanding their processes has been key. And I think that really uh, in a lot of ways sets us apart at True Labs because we understand what operators are going through and, and we can sure. help diagnose or, or uh, correct or make suggestions or, or whatever the case is um, to how to be better partners for, for them going forward and making sure their product is safe and, 
So our, our viewpoint at True Labs is to be beyond a service provider and to truly be scientific partners with the people that we work with. And, and Sarah's right. I try when we have conversations with people about the work that they're doing, whether it's through extraction, uh, growing and harvesting, or product development of infused goods. Uh, I have been a part of that world before. Um, so understanding the challenges that they face and trying to help them understand how we can work with them on R&D testing or certain aspects that they may be um, exposed to or certain ingredients that they may be utilizing may influence the way in which we handle samples. And all of that comes into play as we really try to make sure that we are this scientific partnership and that we're doing everything we can to understand not only their needs from a testing perspective, but just in general, how can we provide them as much support as possible from that scientific perspective? Admirable. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so kind of like how, from those conversations, how are you kind of rolling that in Sarah to, to your role as the chair of lab testing committee on the NJCBA and, like, are you learning anything from the people that you're speaking with and then kind of bringing it to that committee? Yes. So I'll answer that in twofold. Um, so, yeah. So True Labs joined the New Jersey Cannabis Business Association in the fall of last year. And one of the things I was interested in doing right away is starting a laboratory testing committee. New Jersey's Cannabis Regulatory Commission does not have any scientists on staff, and they were and still are right now, operating under interim testing standards. Uh, and it's a short-term thing, but understanding that more long-term New Jersey testing standards needed to come, it, it was really clear that New Jersey could use some scientific expertise and advice. So the committee formed in early December, and right now we're represented by five cannabis testing labs in various phases of startup as well as a third of our members are scientific experts who are not associated with the laboratory at all. Uh, and the objective is to help provide guidance to the NJ Cannabis, well, NJCRC, Cannabis Regulatory Commission, uh, to ensure consumer safety and transparency. Uh, consumers have a right to know what's in the products they buy, and we wanna make sure that the data they're seeing is accurate and trustworthy, they can rely on it, um, so we're thinking about consumers and patients first. So in some ways, I think of our testing or our lab testing committee as a consumer advocacy group in a lot of ways with a lot of scientific expertise, right? So our committee has uh, approximately 250 years of natural sciences expertise combined, as well as about 75 of those years are focused on cannabis. And this expertise is coming from literally every state uh, with a Canvas program, as well as other countries. So we've seen what works, what doesn't, and what New Jersey could do better based on the learnings from other states. So you talk, you asked too about what are we learning from conversations with clients and operators. We learn a lot, and we're, I'm always talking about this committee and, and what we're trying to do and get input, because um, as we think about, it's, it's not just a, a committee of labs. And, and doing what labs want. It's a committee of, well, how can we be the scientific experts to help this market flourish and to be the best market and to be the safest? And 
to not have product issues, so to speak. I mean, we're not going to totally eliminate it by this committee by any means, but we can help, you know, voice our opinions and, and help ideally create a, a program in New Jersey that um, is something to be mirrored and, and rivaled. Um, so New Jersey has a really rich history of innovation and it's from, take it from Thomas Edison and Bell Labs and pharmaceutical industry that is so much in our, in our backyard and DNA that, uh, we are, and I think we should be treating cannabis as that next big innovation that New Jersey did right. Um, and so I think we have uh, a very big opportunity in front of us and um, really excited that the committee has, um, I'll call it the blessing of the Cannabis Regulatory Commission. It's probably the wrong word to use, but a relationship where um, our voice is being heard and hopefully we can help. That's the idea. So uh, the, this this committee... Um, have you put together best practices or guidance that, uh, you, you think that New Jersey or the U S in general should follow? I mean, maybe something like standardized nutrition label type, uh, ideas, or, uh, I, I always find, you know, C of A's from different labs look different. They present information in a way that if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't know what it says. So, uh, I mean, one thing that I, I think I'd hate is like being presented a set of lab results that mean nothing to me, like put, put something on there that I can interpret uh, as, as somebody that's taking a natural product that I've never taken before. What do you think? For sure. Yeah, I think that, that it, it, it's very important that uh, we start to have some sort of homogenization within the industry, and that's from market to market. And I think the biggest challenge that we have right now is that the standards differ across various states or markets. And so that variability is what causes problems more than anything else. And if, if as a community, we can start to usher in more a more mature market, I think people will be able to operate within a predictable set of guidelines in a way that starts to be more predictable and people can interact with more easily. And, you know, whether that's from the standpoint of regulations, uh, whether it's from the standpoint of methods that are used within the space or analytes that are tested for all the way through to then how they are presented and interpreted by consumers, all of that lacks standardization right now. So it's almost an intractable problem to be able to say, well, here's the, here's the best thing that we can do right away to fix this situation of consumers not necessarily knowing how to interpret or look or what to look for when it comes to data, because we don't even have the standardization at the lab side of things where any lab is forced to have a certain set of procedures that they could utilize in different markets. So that first and foremost is one of the biggest challenges that we have in this space. Um, so from the perspective of um, the NJCBA and our lab testing 
panel, you know, we've had these conversations where we continually try to ask questions about what are best practices, but we try to then acknowledge, you know, what are regional specific practices? Are there, you know, is there specificity with neighbors that we have in markets that are overlapping if it comes into the hemp space? Is there um, something that we can do to start to have conversations with not only the new Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission, but having conversations with the state of New York and the state of Connecticut. Um, because really those are the types of conversations that have to start happening in the absence of the federal government stepping in and ushering in something that's more ubiquitous across the entire industry. So our hope is that by partnering with people from not only testing labs within the state of New Jersey, but providers who serve those labs and MSOs who work in multiple jurisdictions that we're having those conversations. We're starting to try to think about what that might look like and the impacts that that could have, because only by then, by adapting standards in that way, will we be able to be more effective communicators to patients. And we, we will still strive to do that constantly, but, um, you know, we take education, the education side of it, very important. Um, it's one thing to provide good quality data. It's a whole different aspect to make sure that that data is approachable um, and that people can utilize that data. So how do we have different metrics that are important for health and safety? And then how do we have different metrics that are important for quality? These are the types of conversations that we hope we can continue to have with our clients uh, and that, you know, by putting COAs out there that are clear uh, and laid out in a way that consumers will have a better chance at understanding that data, we can bridge some of those gaps within the current system. I'm just going to give a quick shameless plug here for us that we are doing a webcast with you guys in August on um, understanding COAs and why they're important and critical. So stay tuned for that, everybody listening. Are there terpenes on the COA? Which, so yeah, like uh, what all the analytes, the potency, pesticides, terpenoids. Yeah, there, there's there's so many. And and part of the challenge, honestly, with the COA and, and analytes in general is you can drown in data. So, um, you know, we're testing for uh, potency. Um, we're testing for terpenes. We're testing for pesticides, heavy metals, residual solvents, microbiological screening, and mycotoxin testing. And the reality is, all of those are incredibly important, but at what level um, to the average consumer? Do they need to go through and look at uh, the results of, um, you know, a 67 pesticide panel and, and look at each analyte individually? Or can they uh, understand that the lab tested them uh, and has marked the material as clean. And that's part of the challenge that you get when you look at the variability of COAs within the industry as well, is, um, you know, if a, if a lab doesn't do a good job of providing a, a breakdown of the meaning of that data, all of a sudden you're looking at 
what amounts to be an Excel spreadsheet with hundreds of lines of information that are not only the result of the uh, the the test, but the LOD, LOQ, so the limits of detection, limits of quantitation of the instrumentation that you're using for these tests. And all of that information is important because it's the backbone and it's the fundamental nature of this test, but it's not necessarily that important for the consumer themselves. So I always like to bring up the fact that as this market matures, I think testing will become um, will, will remain a, an integral part, but may become less uh, obvious to people because we can exist in the background. I always say, when is the last time that you asked for a COA on, on your vanilla extract? I, you know, and I, I don't know a person who's ever asked for a COA on vanilla extract because you have faith that that was extracted properly, that it's uh, clean and and pure and that's a sign of a, a mature marketplace relative to the cannabis industry. I, I I agree with you to some degree. I think, you know, pesticides, mycotoxins, you know, cleanliness factors. Absolutely. That falls into the background. Uh, but potency, terpenoids, flavanols, like... The, the the makeup is so diverse from flower to flower and how much of that is is retained through through transformation into different products um uh, there there's there's got to be a way to convey that information because that that is the the thing that makes cannabis special for sure. So, you know, with those metabolites, now you're focusing in more so on quality differentiators, right? With health and human safety, you want to know that the product is clean. But with things like cannabinoids and terpenes, those metabolites, you want to know the uh, the full panel. You want to see the nuance of different minor cannabinoids or different terpenes that may be present within a sample because those metabolites have such a profound impact on people's experiential uh, relationship to cannabis and both flower, but also products that are produced from cannabis. So that that's part of the delicate balancing act of a COA is, you know, when it comes to a lot of the safety checks, you want to know that the product is safe. But when you're looking into the details of some of these quality markers, you want to be able to see a panel of cannabinoids that exceeds maybe the six required by regulation that a state may, might have. You want a, a panel of, you know, 12 to 15 or even up to 20 cannabinoids that you're looking at to get a sense. Because as people utilize this material for medicine specifically, um, that relationship, you can't depend on things like strain names and you, you can't rely on <laughs> the, <names. laughs> the historical, you know, people saying, oh, this is, you know, sour diesel or, or this is Girl Scout cookies, you know, the, the relationship to what that means in terms of their metabolite profile um, can be tenuous at best. So it's important that labs present that data clearly so that consumers can start to identify specific strains that work for themselves. And when I say strains in that context, they should be looking at the cannabinoid profile, those with higher concentrations and various terpenes that exist in higher concentrations to others, because that can be predictable in a way that strain names and identifiers cannot. 
if you can continue to look at different COAs for batches and get something that's related to something that you've had a good experience with in the past, you can more easily predict that you're going to have better luck in the future with something that you're purchasing. So uh, you're saying it's complicated. I'm saying it's complicated. And that's, you know, that really is the nature of things right now is we do not have um, years and years of research to look back on and be able to identify easy answers. So right now, uh, what we understand is we understand that people react positively to this plant uh, and these metabolites but we can't always predict why and how. And I think with relaxing federal um, guidelines around cannabis, hopefully will come more research dollars and scientists and, uh, and clinicians can start to dive into some of those questions. But in the meantime, what we have to understand is that we are complex beings and so are these plants. And there's an array of metabolites that they have, and we have an array of receptors that they bind to. And so everyone is, this is the epitome of individualized medicine. And, you know, we have put a little bit of the onus on the patients uh, to try to monitor that situation. And the best thing that we can do is provide solid COAs with clear data so that people can be aware of the various types of compounds that exist uh, in these products and how they may provide them with relief or what it is they're, they're looking to treat. Let's, let's add more complexity to it. Uh, how about the synthetic or these semi-synthetic cannabinoids that are out there? You, you said you're looking at the hemp space too. Well, most of their throughput is is these uh, interesting other compounds that have been derived from from CBD isolate, right? Are you seeing those products? And if you are, are you, are you seeing degradation in products like that? Uh, what's there's your experience so, there? Well, there's so much variability. I mean, it, again, I'll kind of take a step back really quickly to look back at kind of my background, which was natural product chemistry in a broader sense, specifically focused on pharmaceuticals. And, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry, it's, it's routine that we may do partial derivatives or partial syntheses on natural products to create uh, a different classes of compounds. The issue is that, you know, they're all undergoing rigorous testing, not only for quality and safety, but also for efficacy. So what we're doing now is we're taking something that's understudied in cannabinoids and various uh, compounds that we're isolating from cannabis. And now on top of that, we're doing partial syntheses or exposing them to chemical reactions and producing a wide range of products. So people may talk about the conversion of uh, CBD to Delta-8 or Delta-10 um, THCs. And the reality there is, you know, if those were 100% uh, efficient conversions, it'd be one thing. But we know from doing analysis that there's 
a number of different metabolites that are being produced in these reactions. And so we're taking something that's fairly poorly understood, and then we're doing chemistry on this, these complex systems and then yielding something that is compounding that complexity. So in a, in a very broad sense, it's, it, it's very hard to, um, you know, to take those products uh, and have any faith in what you're getting as a consumer and certainly as a testing lab, because we can see the production of a, a number of different compounds that we are not even even able to identify and quantify yet so it you know it makes for a system that's untenable i mean it, it certainly would be nothing that could ever be turned around and made into a druggable compound from the perspective of the pharmaceutical industry that's for sure wow so our next question was do you have a preference for synthetic versus natural but i think you kind of answered that do you, would you want to add anything well, really what it comes down to, and I, you know, this is where the scientist in me rears, uh, rears its ugly head, which is all of this needs more research, you know, and part of, part of the push to regulating this market, especially trying to uh, get the federal government to regulate this at their level, is that, you know, my hope is that scientists can start to ask and answer these questions through robust research programs. You know, at this time, um, we are still operating blindly, mostly, you know, it's, it's through um, people's individual experiences. And we know and we see through these stories, the positive impact that cannabis has on a number of people. But we do not fully understand uh, the future potential for this plant and these compounds. And so, you know, but certainly what we know is that there's been millions of years of evolution taking place to produce the natural cannabinoids and, you know, our ability to simply oxidize or, you know, provide a metal catalyst to create these new compounds in situ, you know, I think evolution and millions of years of that and, and interacting with this plant uh, as a species for thousands of years uh, probably has done a better job than we can do in the lab in, in the past 10 years uh, in terms of reliability of how they act within our physiological makeup. Yeah, and I'll just add to that sense from a just a consumer, like a food consumer in general. I mean, I avoid GMOs. I avoid, uh, you know, I buy organic. I, I don't like fake stuff added to my food. I don't know why, as a cannabis consumer, I would have consumed like man-made products, so to speak. Yeah, those are such good points. Do you guys think that there's any like increased prevalence of the synthetic cannabinoids because of the, the research limitations. Like, you know, a lot of people can't study the actual plant because it's still federally illegal. So, but they can study the synthetic versions. Do you think, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think it's mostly economics driving that right now, you know, people always look to take advantage of loopholes any way that they can. And I had worked closely with the hemp industry for a long time. And I think 
the reality of people augmenting that material was driven more so by the ability to sell products like Delta 8 THC uh, more freely in the marketplace than having to wait for uh, a state license to sell Delta 9 THC products. Um, I, you know, I, I would love to say that it was research driven, uh, but um, I, I really, I don't see that. And I haven't really seen a lot of uh, scientific labs take advantage of that legal loophole for research purposes. So I don't think that that has contributed in any meaningful way mm-hmm. to um, expediting the research into these classes of compounds at all. I, I certainly agree with you uh, in, in terms of the economics of it. Um, and you see some of the the derivative economics worked out so well, there are supply chains that now exist that want product that isn't in nearly the surplus it used to be. Uh, and, and, but everybody's over Delta eight, you've got Delta 10 is this side product, but there's HHC and, now you're now you're starting to see them tinker with the the tail end of the molecule and and there's THCP out there. Uh, uh, I mean the, these are interesting semi synthetics. Um, it's it's very much aligned with what we've done in pharmaceuticals. I think you know one of the appeal uh, appeals to these synthetics is actually control. If people can synthesize something partially, they can patent it, but you can't patent a natural product. Um, you know, so there's certainly push there, but again, I think it still tends to be more so from an economic standpoint, um, rather than, uh, because there's an obvious differentiator. I mean, you know, really what it comes down to is creating novel compounds, uh, is one way that people could control those compounds. But other than that, since we don't necessarily have the foundational knowledge about the activities of all of the natural cannabinoids, we certainly don't have information about these partially synthetic cannabinoids. So to to look at the next layer of, uh, uh, of issues in this industry, um, the... We know from plenty of other states that there's there's lab shopping that's going on and there's labs that are, are happy to sell whatever number somebody wants because uh, at the end of the day, without the education of the consumer, uh, the only uh, metric there is to go by in the dispensary is THC and then this nebulous indica sativa thing that's wrong. Um, so uh, how how can you um, uh, and the industry prevent this, get over this? Uh, now that New Jersey's open, what what's to what's to stop the this limited market from from jockeying that that column too well i think in any new market you certainly see pressures as people are coming into the market and trying to get 
a share of that market. But really, I think it comes down to a maturation of the market overall. And as we previously talked about, a a homogenization of regulations will certainly go a long way to improving that if labs have to adhere to a set of standards that's uh, ubiquitous across different regions, you're going to have uh, more uh, reliable results coming from these labs um, that will not have such a wide degree of differentiation. So, you know, the way things have changed in the past five years, you're starting to see this quite a bit just from the perspective that we have um, AOAC approved methods, right? So there's no longer this every lab has this very specific set of uh, methods that are unique to what they spent years developing. You know, we're starting to now communicate as scientists better than we've been able to in the past. So we're starting to see the uh, initial steps towards this maturation and homogenization. But also, you know, you talk about just the overvaluing of THC because it tends to be the thing about cannabis that people know and 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 latch on to. But, you know, I, I tell this story a lot to people. I think that it is a product of prohibition. And, you know, when when something is illegal, you know, and you're moving product that's illegal, there's a uh, a desire to have more of it in a concentrated uh, amount of space. And so, you know, with alcohol prohibition, people were not bootlegging beer. Uh, they were bootlegging moonshine and they were trying to sell that. And I think what we had is we had years and years of people looking to produce higher and higher levels of THC in their plants. But ultimately what we're seeing now, I think, is... Um, Consumers that are new to this industry coming into the industry, we're seeing consumer goods that are um, dosed in a very specific way. And I think what we will continue to see is the push for higher and higher levels of THC will become less and less important to differentiating these products in terms of how people view them when it comes to quality. And hopefully we can start to see that you know, their, uh, the reproducibility of consumer goods or the terpene levels and the, uh, the profile of, uh, scent and taste that are, uh, you know, with certain flowers, uh, will be valued more than simply, you know, three to five percentage points higher of THC levels. And I think that by having the homogenization of the lab testing market, uh, happen in, Uh, or at the same time as consumers starting to understand that just the bottom line of THC percentage points in flour is not the only thing to consider when purchasing cannabis-based products, hopefully we start to see that that is um, something that has less impact on the market. But it's something we have to always be aware of. And there are other aspects of lab shopping that exist too, which are, you know, labs that may potentially pass product that is not safe. And, and maybe microbiological screening is done in a way where um, certain 
batches are getting a pass in one lab and failing in another. And these are, these are serious issues that we face as an industry. And then from the perspective of labs that are testing these products, you know, making sure that we're adhering to professional standards, um, you know, is really key to trying to improve the behavior of labs and the fact that uh, we hope to have the data should not be demonstrably different from lab to lab is the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, standardization am amongst the, the results uh, it's, it, it's tough. I mean, there's, there's certainly going to be variability between humans, but that error can be controlled and may, maybe that should be part of the regulatory burden as well. Um, but, uh, I, I think the, the moving from a focus of, of THC will, will be important, but I think, you know, that, that has to come with, uh, type two flower also. Uh, I, I think, you know, flower is the introductory, uh, product and, and we've got to see, more diversity uh, in the cultivars chosen as well. For sure. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and, you know, that, that can be um, something that we also think about as we had alluded to earlier, the fact that strains and, and various genetic uh, identifiers that we've used to this point have approached a point of being almost meaningless, um, you know, and as new uh, producers are coming online, ultimately, I think that they will hopefully understand that the genetics that they're creating and, and that they're growing on their own uh, may be unique. And, and if we can get away from some of the, um, you know, relating things to their, <laughs> um, their ancestry um, in terms of, you know, where they may have been propagated from in the past will be one of the first steps that we can take to, you know, marketing these um, cultivars to consumers in a way that's independent of kind of the old baggage that we had tied to strain names and, and what the expectations are for certain, certain flowers. Um, but I also think that new consumers are, you know, I, I think that they're going to be trying to identify quality more broadly um, than just how much THC can you get? Because I do think a lot of new consumers that I come into this space are not necessarily trying to achieve the highest level of high that they can experience. You know, they, they want to have more of a nuanced experience and, and appreciate um, cannabis in, in the way that a, a number of us know how to appreciate it without necessarily, um, you know, having to start at something that's a 30% THC level. So what advice would you guys offer to other people interested in setting up an analytical lab for cannabis testing? Make sure you have really thick skin because it will be very difficult at times. And and keep that why with you at all times to help lift you up and keep you going. 
definitely surround yourself with a trusted team. This is not a road you can go down alone. And network, network, network. Um, connections will be that you make along the way will be very beneficial in so many ways on your journey. Um, yeah, I'd say those are the main piece of advice I'd give. Anything you'd add to that, Carl? Yeah, well, I would say over plan, you know. Uh, so when you've planned, do it again, and go over that and iterate on your plan. Um, pay attention to improvements within the industry. Uh, this is one thing that if you're planning to start a company, uh, especially a testing lab, and it takes you 12 months, well, from when you started to when you hit the trigger to get going, there's going to have been some changes within the industry, both from a regulatory standpoint, uh, instrumentation changes. So, you know, continue to over plan. And then I will add on to what you said um, in terms of building a team, complementary skill sets. I just see being so important. And I alluded to that with working with Sarah is, um, you know, it, it's really great to work with people that complement you and have different points of view. Um, you need to be open in having conversations, having your ideas challenged. Um, and if you don't have a team that can internally challenge ideas, um, you know, you're, you're going to be behind the eight ball because ultimately you'd like to do as much, uh, internal challenging before you have to be facing the external challenges that all of us have to face when getting operational. I mean, that's, that's great advice uh, for certain C scenario planning is something that any and every business should do uh, for certain Ma make a plan to throw, throw a crazy thing at the wall because anything can happen. Uh, I, I count, my my business and our colleagues very lucky that we had some some problems in the years leading up to 2020 that like we we learned some lessons in hardened aspects of our business and turning remote was not so difficult now lab business i can't imagine uh you can turn remotely but i i've i've watched a bunch of really impressive companies uh work their way through this situation. So, um, you know, the, it's great. Uh, I, I've got one last question. Um, and I, I think you guys have laid a solid foundation for it already, but like wh where, where do you hope to see the, the industry, this whole, uh, cannabis economy as a whole uh, in, in five years, in New Jersey, in the U.S., in internationally, where wh what do you what do you see on the horizon? I'd love to see New Jersey in five years as the safest and most operationally logical cannabis market. Um, more broadly across the U.S., as Carl was talking about before, there needs to be more standardization with safety testing of cannabis products. At some point, cannabis will be federally legal. When that happens, the FDA should step in to help ensure product safety. There should be some continuousness. And I think Carl used the term homogenization in the lab industry, but um, just like food, beverage, pharmaceuticals, right? 
So my hope is that what we are building in New Jersey will shine like this beacon for excellence that other states will look to model after. And I'll piggyback and say in five years, you know, being in the New Jersey marketplace for the past year, I have been impressed uh, by the people that I have met and the operations that I've seen uh, getting off the ground. And I do think that New Jersey has a real potential to be industry leaders within the cannabis sector uh, nationally and internationally. And I would see them continuing to do so. There's very impressive business people and operators within the state of New Jersey. And I have no doubt that they'll continue to innovate and push the envelope. Um, and I and I look forward to being part of that, uh, that community moving forward. Now, nationally and internationally, I think we will see more incremental change. Um, we continue to see people coming on board. Uh, we continue to see some loosening of restrictions. Um, but in a five-year period, I'm not sure that we'll see any great shift, seismic shift or anything like that. Um, but I hope that I can listen to this podcast in five years and say how wrong I was. I just, uh, I don't know that I believe that we'll get there quite that fast. Uh, but absolutely, I, I think we'll continue to see the improvements, uh, the acceptance uh, happening on a very, very broad scale, both nationally and internationally. Great. Well, as Evan said, th those are all of our questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I'll just mention something that, you know, everyone in the cannabis industry, no matter what role they're in, whatever role they're playing, whether it's at a licensed operator, cultivator, manufacturer, a lab, an ancillary service provider, everyone has an obligation to work to make this industry better. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity to make an, a real impact and make a mark in history, so to speak, uh, to make a difference, to fight an injustice that harms so many, um, to raise an industry from the ground up. So in homage to Pride Month, but with a double meaning, be loud and be proud. Um, we need the advocacy in this industry and the more people that speak up and stand up for what's right, the better off we're going to be and the more of a defined market will become. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you, Meg and Evan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. We, we appreciate you taking some time to tell us about True Labs for Cannabis and your work to help move the industry forward. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, Megan, Evan.